This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a new year. Thank you for 2016 and that you see the end of this year from the beginning of it and you know all the things that each of us individually will face this year. You know the joys and the sorrows. You know the temptations and the trials. You know the gifts that you will give. And you know that you have provided for us everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, I pray that you would enable us today to hear your word. I pray that you would come and set me aside and that you would speak through me. It is a, this is a difficult subject for me to be able to communicate clearly, Father, and you know that I am growing in my own understanding of it. I pray that you would set aside my limitations and that the Spirit of Christ would speak through me. And I pray that when we come to the end of this message, we would understand more clearly the subject of salvation and that we would have the joy of salvation, for that is the gift of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, start out with the same verse that we uh, went over yesterday. This is Christ's um, remedy that he is offering to the Laodicean church, the church that had lost their warmth for him. They're, they're, they were no, neither cold nor hot, and we know that that actually represents us, unfortunately. Um, and so he talks to them about how that is quite unpalatable to the heart of God and that his desire is that they would be hot, not lukewarm. And actually he says that lukewarmness is less palatable to him <clears throat> pardon me, than being out and out cold. Why? Because when we, are, when we have a form, the form of godliness but we deny the power thereof, that is more... Nothing tears down the power of the gospel to the eyes of the watching world than Christians that have the form of godliness but don't have the power. And so it would be better for the cause of Christianity if we would just be out and out cold than if we would actually be lukewarm. But thankfully there is hope for us. Revelation 3.18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, we talked about that yesterday, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. So we're going to talk about the white raiment today. The righteousness of Christ. What does that mean? Ellen White makes this very, frankly, startling statement that not one in a hundred understand salvation. She's speaking about the professed people of God. She's not talking about the world in general. She says that amongst the professed people of God, not one in a hundred understands salvation. I remember the first time I read that, I was very overwhelmed by it. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Are you saying that if 5,000 of the people of God were gathered together, that like 50 of them legitimately understand salvation? Do I understand salvation? That was like my immediate next question. Am I one of the, am I the one or am I the hundred that does not understand? Now, thankfully, the numbers, aren't, numbers don't really matter, but it is a statement that should um, give us sobriety as to do we really understand 
salvation. And like I said yesterday, when we have that gold, when we have that foundation of faith, it is the soil from which love can grow. And when we have this white raiment, it is the atmosphere that keeps love alive. And if we don't have it, love quickly dies. So let's start looking, let's, let's start by looking at a biblical passage. Cain versus Abel. Renouncing our own fruits and turning to the blood. If you, would, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 4. Starting in verse 1. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. She's pretty excited. Now, Eve was aware of the concept of redemption and of the fact that a Messiah was going to be sent to earth. And so, you know, of course she's excited. Maybe this is the one. Unfortunately, far from it. I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she, bare, and she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstling of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was what? Very raw. He wasn't just angry, he was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now let's get some um, background to this. So this is obviously the very first family. Shortly before that, we don't know exactly how much time, but shortly before that, the, you know, the fall had taken place in the garden, and they had, Adam and Ethan, been ejected from the garden. And that, those last, Genesis 3, that, last, that story of the fall and of the things that took place around that time, what do we remember? We remember something very unique about the account of the fall. That was after the Adam and Eve had fallen, what did they realize pretty quickly? Uh-oh, robe of light's gone, we're naked. What was their solution? They made themselves, you know, robes of leaves somehow. And I don't know if, I'm sure the trees in the Garden of Eden were very tall and magnificent, so maybe they had large leaves, but of course the people were proportionally larger as well, so, you know, we, there's those, all those, like, artist depictions of them in their little garments of leaves with, like, all of them stitched really nicely, and I'm sure that they were extremely ingenious people, of course, but at the same time, a garment of leaves, what's the, what's the obvious um, problem with a garment of leaves, even if they're stitched together? If a breeze comes by, what's going to happen? I mean, like, it does not cover nakedness. If a breeze comes by, those things are going to ruffle, and what happens? And this is the experience of humanity. Immediately when we realize, uh-oh, I don't have this within me, our immediate tendency is to turn to leaves, our own works, and we try to stitch them together. But the problem is that the first breeze that comes by of temptation, of trial, of the first test of our faith that comes by, that those leaves ruffle, and pretty soon everybody knows. We don't have anything to cover us. And so we try with more leaves and add more leaves and add more leaves. What was Christ's solution? Of course, we remember in the story of Genesis 3, he comes down, and what does he do? He gives them cloaks of skins, which was an analogy in and of itself of salvation. We cannot conjure up something to cover ourselves, but God's idea was that something else would die, and we would be imparted its merit to cover ourselves. In other words, the skin belonged 
to the lamb, not to us. The lamb died, the skin of the lamb is given to us to cover us. It was not ours, we did not develop that skin, we did not grow that fur, nothing. Nothing pertains to us and the lamb had to give up its life. And that was a pre-shadowing of salvation, of course, in every way. So Cain and Abel are aware of this. Leaves versus skins. Immediately, right after the fall, it pops up. Our own efforts, we're going to stitch together the leaves, or God slays the lamb and gives us the lamb's covering. Cain and Abel are aware of this concept. This comes from Patriarchs and Prophets. Cain came before God with murmuring and infidelity in his heart in regard to the promised sacrifice and to the necessity of the sacrificial offerings. So they both, they both were aware. This was not a secret. This was not something that Cain didn't know that you were supposed to bring a lamb or that Abel didn't, you know, Abel somehow had information that Cain didn't. They both knew the same thing, that they were supposed to bring sacrificial offerings to express faith in the promised creator. Cain came before God with murmuring and infidelity in his heart in regard to the promised sacrifice and the necessity of the sacrificial offerings. His gift, what did he choose to bring? His own stuff, right? He was a tiller of the ground, and so he goes out and he's like, well, I'll bring my own stuff, the stuff that I grew, the stuff that I have produced. God should appreciate this. I've put a lot of work into this, and so he brings his uh, fruit to God. Now, was bringing the first fruits to God a part of the whole sacrificial system? Yes, it was, but what was it supposed to express? It was a thank offering. It was a thank offering. It was not, a, it, it did not have any, of course we know that the sacrificial offerings themselves did not have any power to, to take away sin. It was the faith that was expressed in the Creator. But at the same time, choosing to sacrifice a lamb was expressing faith in the Creator. Bringing your vegetables to God or bringing your own works to God was supposed to simply be gratitude. It's not that the works were not involved, but they had nothing to do with salvation. They had to do with thankfulness. What we do with our lives is not because we can earn salvation. It's because we're grateful for salvation. But Cain has the idea he's going to bring these works himself. His gift expressed no penitence for sin. He felt, as many now feel, that it would be an acknowledgement of weakness to follow the exact plan marked out by God instead of, uh, of trusting his salvation wholly to the atonement of the promised Savior. She continues, he chose the course of self-dependence. He would come in his own merits. He would not bring the lamp and mingle its blood with his offering, but would present his fruit, the product of his labor. He presented his offering as a favor done to God, through which he expected to gain divine approval. Cain obeyed in building an altar, he obeyed in bringing a sacrifice, but he rendered only partial obedience. The essential part, the recognition of the need of a redeemer, was left out. By faith, Abel offered unto God, this is uh, continuing the same passage, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And we're like, well, what's the, what's the big deal? What's the big difference between a lamb versus the fruit? By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sac sacrifice than Cain. Abel grasped the great principles of redemption. He saw himself a sinner, and he saw sin and its penalty, death, standing between his soul and communion with God. And otherwise, Abel was like, you know what, I don't have anything good to offer. 
The lamb doesn't count. Nothing counts. All I need is a redeemer. If I don't have the righteousness of this Christ, all the world cannot save me. Sin and its penalty, death, was standing between his soul and communion with God. He brought the slain victim, the sacrificed life, thus acknowledging the claims of the law that had been transgressed. In other words, Abel had transgressed the law of God. He had sinned, but he brought the slain victim, the sacrificed life. Through the shed blood, he looked to the future sacrifice, Christ dying on the cross of Calvary and trusting to the atonement that was there to be made. He had witnessed that he was righteous. Repeating that, trusting to the atonement that was there to be made, he had witnessed that he was righteous, was righteous, and his offering was accepted. Powerful. Why is this message so difficult to give? Why is salvation so difficult to understand? Is it highly complex? No. It's actually one of the simplest things. I mean, it is, it's, it's extremely deep. So it will be the science and song of the universe throughout eternity. But it's actually profoundly simple. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard for us to understand. Because we're looking for something more complex. You know, bringing our own things and we have to do something. And we want something to, you know, we're looking for something more complex. And then salvation is so profoundly simple that we, we miss it. The book of Romans has a reputation for being an extremely difficult to understand book. The reason why it's so difficult to understand is because humans don't think this way. We don't think the way that salvation works. And so it's, hard for, it's easy for us to miss and hard for us to comprehend. It's hard for us to get. And, and, and Paul spends a whole book trying to explain, and he's giving the example of Abraham and the example of you know this and that. And, and in Galatians, he's talking about Hagar and Sarah and, how, and Ishmael and Isaac and how these things are an example of things to come. Just because he's trying to articulate it in a way that the human mind can understand since it's so foreign to the way we think. So foreign to the way we think. The Cain syndrome. Two things that are seemingly opposite, but they come from the same place. The Cain syndrome. Thinking that we can earn the favor of God through will worship, voluntary humility, forms and rules, living by my own standard of morality. I have to dress this way. I have to eat that way. I have to do this. I have to do that. And if I do them all, praise the Lord, I am saved. And actually, typically, I think we actually don't think that way consciously in our, in our minds. We don't usually think, if I dress this way and I act this way and I eat this way and I don't watch that and I such and such, then that formula will save me. We don't Usually our thinking is not so blatantly incorrect. However, oftentimes beneath the surface of what we do, those beliefs exist. The other way the Cain syndrome expresses itself is, watch this second one. It seems opposite, but it comes from the same root. Thinking that God isn't so particular on the subject of salvation. Thinking that God will adjust his views to culture's idea of what is right. In other words, why does it have to be a lamp? You know, why do I have to do exactly like, God, God isn't that kind of God. He isn't shallow. He's not that particular. He doesn't, he doesn't mind. Like, I'm going to bring, oh, Lord, praise the Lord. I'm, you know, I can just bring whatever I want to bring. It, it comes from the exact same, even though it's kind of an opposite manifestation, it comes from the exact same root. The idea that God doesn't care. I can just live the way I want to live and praise the Lord, I'm saved is also another manifestation of the Cain syndrome. 
This is, comes from the book Faith and Works. I have read this book over and over and over again for the last two years. And I would strongly encourage you, I see Mark in the back, he's another fan of this book. You, uh, I would strongly encourage any of you that feel like you need a clearer understanding of salvation to read the book Faith and Works over and over and over and over again. It will, it will change the way you think. There is no point, this comes from Faith and Works, eight, uh, page 18.3, there is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, not a single point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all, everyone, than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, I want to tell you my own personal experience. I thought for very, very, very many years that I really did believe that salvation was in Jesus Christ alone. If you had asked me, do you, do you believe you can earn heaven by what you do? I would have told you no. You can't. It only comes through believing in Jesus Christ. I would have told you that. However, underneath the surface of my conscious thought, which was correct, my conscious thought was accurate, was my subconscious thought. And that was, oh, no, I failed again. And when I went to God to ask forgiveness, oh, I asked forgiveness. And then a while later, I repent and ask forgiveness. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. A while later, I still feel bad for that. Oh, Lord, do you forgive me? Please forgive me. And that is actually a manifestation of the opposite of this belief, that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. If we feel like we have to repent sufficiently or else or we still feel bad for what happened is actually a manifestation of this exact concept we think there's something we need to do something we need to do to mm, make ourselves acceptable to god one of my favorite passages here i ask how can i present this matter as it is praise the lord the lord jesus listen to this please the lord jesus imparts all the powers, all the grace, all the penitence, all the inclination, all the pardon sins in presenting his righteousness for man to grasp by living faith, which is also the gift of God. All the powers, all the grace, all the impenitence, all the inclination, all the pardon for sins in presenting his righteousness for man to grasp by living faith, which is also, by the way, the gift of God. If you don't feel like you have living faith, none of us do. The Lord Jesus imparts the living faith. The Lord Jesus imparts the living faith so that we can grasp the righteousness of Christ. He is the one that gives us the inclination to desire to grasp the righteousness of Christ. He is the one that, once you grasp the righteousness, pardons us. Everything is born of Jesus Christ, nothing, previous slide, nothing we can do, impossible, it all comes from Jesus Christ. We cannot be inclined towards God, we cannot feel penitent, we cannot um, conjure repentance, exercise faith or trust, we cannot lay my life down, bring honor to God, demonstrate unselfishness, Demonstrate love, be renewed, whip up heavenly joy or peace, maintain a soft heart, keep my commitments, understand the scriptures, or have a tenacity in seeking after God. All those things are impossible. They come from one source. 
and that is Jesus Christ. And this is why we struggle with having the joy of salvation. Because when it's something we have to do, we're always behind the curve. Are you confident this morning of your salvation? Do you know for sure? I'm not asking you to answer me. I'm just saying, ask yourself. I was laying in bed this morning as soon as I woke up around 4.30, just, just praying and thinking over 2015 and thinking about the blood of Jesus Christ which covers my 2015 as marked with sin and failing as it was. It's covered by the blood of Jesus. Thank God. What reason is there not to be joyful? But if we think that intellectually, but our heart doesn't quite get it, the joy of salvation is not there. This is why Christ must be the Alpha, the beginning of our faith. The inclination, it all has to come from Him. The desire, it all comes from Him. The repentance, it all comes from Him. Elamite says no man is pardoned until he repents. So we're like, oh, then I definitely need to repent. But the repentance comes from God. It's nothing that I have to, oh, let me repent. No, the repentance is a gift. The pardon is a gift. Christ must be the Alpha, the very beginning of our faith. Once he has become the Alpha of faith, then he can work by his own power to, the, to be the Omega of our faith to bring his work to completion. If we have the slightest inkling towards God, the littlest desire for the Christ life, the tiniest weariness of sin, of mediocrity, of selfishness, or of futility, if we yearn for something higher than ourselves, if we want pardon for something we have done, if we desire to know the love of Christ, this is proof that Christ is already at work in our hearts. He is already drawing us, even the slightest desire, because none of this comes from us. I don't desire God of myself. I do desire God because Christ has put that desire there himself by his grace. This is another one of my very favorite quotes. He who will lay hold of Christ's righteousness need not wait one moment that he, may blot, that he may himself may blot out his own sins. He need not wait until he has made a suitable repentance before he may take hold upon Christ's righteousness. Then she says at the bottom, we do not understand the matter of salvation. Watch this. It is just as simple as ABC. This is a direct quote from Ellen White. It is just as simple as ABC, but we don't understand it because we're looking for something else. We want something that we can do or something we can... Instead of just looking at the blood and expecting him to provide the repentance, him to provide the pardon, him to provide everything we need, we have every reason to rejoice because our names are secure in the book of life because of Jesus, written in his blood, not in anything that we've done. Yes, are there corresponding works in our life? Yes, but they are a mark of gratitude, not something that wins salvation. Salvation, fully known, fully loved. One of the biggest things that has made this subject clear in my mind has been being in a relationship with my wonderful fiancé, Paul. I am a very justice-oriented person, naturally. Very justice-oriented. Everything needs to be fair. Everything needs to make, be right and make sense. This is the way I have kind of popped out. And, um, and justice, is, justice is good. However, my, uh, my sweet honey is a man very, very inclined towards mercy. And he has communicated to me more about the love of God than I could have learned in a lifetime without him. And one of the things that when he first came and wanted to, you know, ask to get into a relationship with me, or actually it wasn't even, he didn't actually 
asked to get into a relationship with me at that point. He just told me that he wanted to get to know me better, kind of. It was, it was uh, yeah. Anyway, he told me he wanted to get to know me better. And I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll need to pray about this. And so he's like, okay, that's fine. You can have all the time you need. And over the next few days, I was stuck on this one thought. And that was, why does he want to get to know me? Why? He does not know me. Clearly, he does not know me because if he knew me, he would not want to be in a relationship with me. Obviously, what makes him think? And I was asking my family constantly. I was like, what makes him think he knows me? He doesn't know the first thing about me. He actually did. Um, <laughs> he knew a lot more about me than I thought he did. And uh, I knew a lot less about him than I thought I did. Um, but my obsession was, if I was known, I would not be loved. Now, I'm not sure where this thought came from because I have a very loving family. But somehow I rationalized it in my mind where it was like, well, yeah, they love me. They love me unconditionally, but they're my family. This is not, this, you know, Paul is not my family. This is a complete, he wasn't a stranger. He was a family friend. But in my mind, he was a stranger to who I really was as a person. So I was like, it doesn't, you know, if he actually knew me, he would not, he would not want to pursue a relationship. Why is he asking this? He just, and my family was like, you know what, you just need to relax type thing. So I actually went back to Paul and I asked him specifically. I was like, why? That's my one question. And um, he, he, didn't really fully answer the, uh, he didn't fully answer the question at all at that point. In fact, he kind of um, skirted the question because I, I said to him, I was like, is this just because he's one of my brother's best friend, my older brother's best friend. So I was like, do you just want to get to know me because I'm Sean's little sister? Is that why you want to get to know me? Or just because you think I'm a nice girl? Or you think you, oh, you like my values? Why do you want to get to know me? And he was like, oh, there's other reasons besides that. And that was the only answer he gave me at the time. But over time, I began to realize he knew me, and he still loved me. He knew me, and he still loved me, obviously. The love part came a little bit later in the relationship. But this is the essence of God. The God of the Bible knows us. He knows every wrong thought we have, that has come into our minds. He knows that our hearts are deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. He knows that we're deceived to our own condition oftentimes. He knows that we are weak and faltering. He knows our frame. He remembers we're dust. And he loves us. That is the God of the Bible. For when we were yet without strength, this comes from Romans, when we were without strength, ESV says, when we were weak, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man, will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. In other words, humans do not, Paul is setting this, he threw this verse in to say, humans do not think this way. A human probably won't die for somebody else. Maybe for a good man, they would die. Maybe for their child, they would die. Maybe for their spouse, they would die. Maybe that happened. Who, who in this room actually knows someone who gave up their life, their physical life, for another person? Two hands. Three hands. It's because it's rare. Scarcely. Scarcely for you know, a good man. Someone might dare to die. But God, God is different from us humans. He's like, we... He doesn't think like us. God commends his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
much more than. In other words, that happens, so now significantly we can place our confidence in this. Much more than we shall, now being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we're reconciled, now that he counts us his friends, not his enemies, he reconciled us, now that we're his friends, much more, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we shall joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. In other words, okay, we were enemies, he died. Now we're friends. And much more now that we're his friends, his life will save us abundantly. There's no question. Not only do we know we're saved, we can joy in it, we can rejoice in it, we can be free in it. There's no need for us to wallow in our past sins and think, oh, I need to repent again and I need to repent again and I need to repent again. If God has given you sorrow for that sin and you have asked for forgiveness, you are forgiven. And it's over. Continuing in Romans, this is Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? All things. If he didn't spare his own son, how would he not give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? You'll notice that it is, is, is italicized. That means there was a supplied word. It is God that justifieth. But the, the way Paul actually wrote it was like, who's going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God justifies. It's not God. God is not the one laying things to your charge and saying, oh, you did this and you did that and you did the other. No. God justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ died. If Christ is not condemning us, who is the, the, the adversary? What power does he have? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Mercy versus indulgence. This is something that the uh, this is something that challenges human understanding. Because we have a difficult time comprehending God's justice and his mercy being one. It's easy for us to either think of his justice and he like, keeps account of every single sin, or we think that he is mercy, but oftentimes we actually confuse mercy for indulgence. What's the difference between the two of them? Indulgence is what we usually we often see on earth, where there's like the parent and the little kid is running around. Have you ever been in this situation? The little kid is running around or being completely obnoxious to everybody else around, and everybody else is like, you know, having to hold themselves back because the child is being so disagreeable and the parents like, aww. And you're like, what do you mean, aw? The child is not being agreeable right now. Please, you know, contain your child. So that maybe you're thinking in your mind. Indulgence excuses sin. In other words, oh, the little child is doing, you know, such and such. Aw. That's not what God does. Mercy never, indul never excuses sin. It recognizes the sin it pays for the sin and gives the sinner another chance. Let's look at it this way. If someone stole $10,000 from your house, let's put it this way. If my sibling stole $10,000 from your house and you find out about it and you come to me and you're like, your sibling stole $10,000 from me. I did not have those $10,000 to spare. And I said, shh. 
come on, this is America. People can make money in America. It's not a big deal. You know, $10,000 is not a big deal. Just, you know, this is America. Go make it again. That's indulgence. Excuses the sin. It's not a big deal. This is America. Go make your, go make your own money. Mercy says, we have to recognize that there's another principle of justice, right, we were just talking about. But mercy would say, okay, my sibling sold $10,000. I'll pay you the $10,000. It doesn't say, well, that was no biggie, that the $10,000 were stolen. It says, okay, I'll cut you a personal check. There's the $10,000. Leave my sibling to me. I'll work with them. Give them another chance. That's what mercy does. It never excuses and says, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. But I'll pay for it. And that is what Christ has done for us. Our sins are a big deal. They are not some little thing, oh, God doesn't mind if I snap at my sibling. God does mind if we slap at our, snap at our sibling. He is omniscient. He knows everything we have done. He knows everything we, realize, we don't realize we've done. He's merciful and he winks at it But if we don't know. But if we do know, he knows everything we have done, and yet he pays for it and says, give them another chance. That is mercy. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. Then he proceeds, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. It's not something that I'm trying to work up. No, the Lord your God in the midst of you, he's mighty. He will save you. He will save me. We have reason to rejoice because God is rejoicing over us with singing. Can you imagine being there and listening? Sometimes I like to think of being in heaven and all of the redeemed millions and the, and the angels and everyone around the throne on, uh, on a Sabbath morning and we're all singing praises to God and the Lamb. Hallelujah. And when we finish singing, they sing back to us. And their voices drown us out and make our singing sound like carpenter's chips compared to them singing back over their redeemed ones. Hallelujah! Can you imagine that when you accept the blood of Jesus Christ, God sings over you? Oh my. Glory. God is inclined to favor us. He is inclined to favor us in Christ Jesus. When our transgressions are uncovered by the blood, his omniscience knows them all. That's the justice side. And if we never accept the goodness of God, the blood of Jesus Christ, if we keep trying to bring our own fruits and our own stuff to the, to the throne, it is not going to turn out well for us. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When they are covered by blood, he is quick to forget. I remember one time I was on the phone with Paul, sometime in our relationship, and... I don't even remember anymore at all what the circumstances were or what was happening. But I, what I do remember about the conversation is that something had really bothered me and I was being quite petty about it. Petty and difficult to deal with. <clears throat> something that had taken place <clears throat> between us. And I have no recollection anymore what that was. But I was being petty and difficult and we were on the phone. It was like our we talk at a specific time every day and so it was our time to talk and we were on the phone and I was like for the first 20, 15 to 20 minutes of the phone call was being petty and difficult over this issue. 
And he was just being very kind to me in return. And after a while, I did get quite ashamed of myself. It's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. It's the goodness of God that makes us ashamed of our sins and of our selfishness. Anyway, he was being so kind to me that I eventually felt very ashamed of my pettiness and, and my, how difficult I was being. And I was like, you know, I, I'm very sorry. Please forgive me. I should not have made a big deal of this, and it's really not a big deal. And, I, and he's like, oh, I forgive you. And then the subject changed. And like three minutes later, we were talking about something else. I don't remember what that was either. And he says to me, honey, I just love talking to you on the phone. And I was like, after I've, given, after I've been petty and difficult for like the first 20 minutes of our call, now you're going to tell me three minutes later, oh, I love talking to you on the phone. And he was like silent for a moment, and he's like, oh, well, and he kind of laughed, and he's like, to be honest, I had forgotten about that. <laughs> yeah, that was my reaction, exactly. That was my reaction. I was like, you forgot about it? The first 15 minutes of our phone call, I'm being petty and difficult, and then I say sorry, you say you forgive me, and we change the subject for three minutes, and you have already forgotten about how petty and difficult I had been for the first 15. That is grace. That is the love of Jesus Christ showing up in my fiancé, and that is the way he is. That when we come to him and we say, Lord Jesus, I am sorry, blood of Jesus. And three minutes later, he's like, my child, I love talking with you. I love spending time with you. When we were just being petty and difficult, he is quick to forget. He is quick to forget. Our tendency is not to be quick to forget. My little justice oriented is like, that person did that, and mm, I forgive them. I forgive them. I wonder, uh, you know, because they did that, I should do this. That's carnal. That's unrighteous. That's our natural reaction, but that is not the way God is. God is good. God is loving. God is forgiving. He is quick to forget when his blood has covered something. If his blood has not covered it, if we are determined to live in our sins and do what we want to do, his blood does not cover. It does matter. It does matter. But when we have repented and we have turned to Jesus Christ, God covers us with blood and he is quick to forget our errors. He is quick to look back on our lives and be like, you're beautiful. I love you. And we're like, you love us with all my, all my failings, all my difficulties, all my problems, all my pettiness? He's like, yeah, I had forgotten about that. Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. This is, not, this is reality. This is reality. It's not the way we think as humans. My, my little nephew, Hudson, he's 20 months old. I was thinking of this this morning again when I was praying. It just brought, brought tears to my eyes. I was thinking over my 2015, I was like, Lord, I, I want to serve you so much, but in all my 2015, I can see that on my best efforts to serve you and to seek to love you, there's so much humanity mixed in. There's so much sin mixed in. My own, my own selfishness mixed in. But the blood of Jesus Christ covers that, and he looks at me and he says, my child, your 2015 was beautiful because he sees the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ covering everything. What was bad, it erases. What is good, it amplifies to be the righteousness of Jesus Christ. My little nephew Hudson. If I look back on his 2015, 
What's his earthly record? Has he accomplished a lot in life? Has he performed all these mighty things? No. Oh, he's 20 months old. Has his impact in my life been tremendous in 2015? Yes. He has filled all of our existence with so much love, so much joy, so much enthusiasm. I adore that child. I am so thankful. I'd be devastated if I lost him. His earthly record is not of much account so far as far as what he has performed, what he has done. Yes, he's learned to walk. Yes, he's, learned to, he's learning to talk. It's adorable to listen to hear him say my name. Sitasa, Tasa. I love it. But his, I mean, his, his accomplishments are not that much. That is exactly the way, the way that God looks at us. If he looks back at our 2015 and his blood has covered and most of it is just erased, and then, you know, there's things that he has covered with the righteousness of Christ, and he said, you sought to honor me in that situation. And even though our righteousness is filthy rags, the blood of Jesus covers it, and pretty soon God looks at that and he's like, it's beautiful, I love it. Because we've accomplished much? No, because he looks at us and we're growing up we're growing up as children to be someday something that can bring him glory and honor. And in the meanwhile, he loves to hear us speak his name. He loves to hear us call out after him. This is not complicated. Salvation is simple. We just don't understand it. It's hard. All right, we're going to have to move quickly. Dependence, who does the work? Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Psalm 25. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Who is doing the action in this? And who is receiving the action? We are. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Show me thy ways. Who's doing the showing? God. Teach me thy paths. Who's doing the teaching? God. Lead me. Who's doing the leading? Who's doing the teaching? Who's the God of whose salvation? He's the God of my salvation. I'm receiving the action. He is doing the action. On thee do I wait all the day. Salvation. The word, you're the God of my salvation. That Hebrew word there means liberty, deliverance, prosperity, safety, salvation. It brings the picture to my mind of like, we're stuck in this dungeon of cyclical sin and the chains fell off and the doors open and for the first time we can run out into the fresh air and see the flowers and the open sky and the beauty around us. For the first time, salvation. Salvation is not God bending over us and being like, there, there, I love you even though you're locked up in prison. That's not salvation. Salvation is you come out of prison into the bright world of God's grace. You are the God of my liberty, of my deliverance, of my prosperity, of my safety, and of my salvation. And then when he says, on thee do I wait all the day, that word wait means to expect, to gather together, to look, patiently tarry, wait for, wait upon. On thee I wait all the day. You're the God of my salvation, my liberty. It comes from you. And so all day long, I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to tarry right here. I'm going to stand right here. I'm going to look right here. I can't get out of that dungeon. You can get me out. You're the God of my salvation. On you, I'm going to wait all day. That's the essence of salvation. We receive the action. We don't do it. When a soul forsakes any attempt at saving itself and simply continually looks back to the face of God for deliverance, for mercy, for light, for power, for freedom to live the Christ life, that is dependence. And we're not 
wired this way. We always want to take it into our own hands and it's something we have to learn to let go and simply rest in his love. Rest in his love. Try, stop trying to be. Stop trying to do something in, or stop thinking, oh, he doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, he doesn't care. It doesn't matter the way I kind of live my life. That's not true. It does matter. That's why we have to rest in his love. That's why we have to let him let us out of that dungeon. Not for us to make a little palace of that dungeon and be like, oh, I'm just going to live the way I want to live. It doesn't work that way. The sinner may err. I have to move on pretty quickly here. The sinner may err, but he is not cast off without mercy. His only hope, however, is in repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. God's boundless mercy is exercised. God's boundless mercy is exercised toward those who are wholly undeserving. Holy, undeserving on one side, boundless mercy on the other side. Not saying, oh, it doesn't matter. It does matter. He pays for it. He pays for it. He forgives transgressions and sins for the sake of Jesus who has become the propitiation for our sins through faith in Christ, the guilty transgressor is brought into favor with God and into what kind of hope? Strong hope. Strong hope. This doesn't have to be, oh, am I saved? Oh, Lord, am I saved? Oh, Lord, please forgive me. Is is my past record dealt with? No. Strong hope of life eternal. There doesn't have to be doubt or question. Am I saved? Am I not saved? The joy of salvation can be ours. We can run out free because... And you know what? A person that is free is the bravest person in the world. They're not afraid to lose their life. They're not afraid to sacrifice for someone else because when Christ comes, he will repay. This passage is kind of long, but I want want to share it because it talks about how this very principle is the key of what made Paul successful. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. This is Paul writing to Timothy. But join with me in suffering for the gospel, in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. In other words, he's saying that he is suffering for the gospel. He's calling Timothy, you come suffer with me according to the power of God. It's not my own power that enables me to suffer. No, it's according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Period. Long sentence. We can get lost in the middle of his complicated thing, but now listen to this last sentence, this next verse. His conclusion, for this cause, because of everything that our God has done, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Why? I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted unto him until that day. Why do I lack the joy of salvation? So let's say, you know what? Technically, I believe all of this. I believe all of it, but you know, sometimes I just don't feel like forgiven or, or, or... Things that I did in the past, they come back to haunt me and to, you know, to make me feel guilty. Or, or I just, you know, I'm saved and I'm, I, feel, I think I'm saved and I'm, I'm glad. I thank God that I'm saved, but I don't have the joy of salvation. Why do I lack it? Listen to this next passage. This one was a life changer for me. Some who come to God by repentance and confession and even believe that their sins are forgiven 
still fail of claiming as they should the promises of God. They do not see that Jesus is an ever-present helper, like Paul just said. I'm convinced he's able to keep everything I've committed to him about my life and my salvation until that day. They do not see that Jesus is an ever-present Savior. They are not ready to commit the keeping of their souls to him, relying upon him to perfect the work of grace begun in their hearts. While they think they are committing themselves to God, there is a great deal of self-dependence. There are conscientious souls that trust partly to God and partly to themselves. They do not look to God to be kept by his power, but depend again upon watchfulness against temptation and the performance of certain duties for acceptance with him. In other words, I'm saved, I know, I know he's forgiven me and all that, but I need to watch. I need to, I need to, you know, I need to pray. I need to make sure I get up and read my Bible at this, at this time. Make sure I get at least an hour of devotions for acceptance with him. Usually this is, this is subconscious, not conscious thinking. And this happened in my life for a long time. Such persons listen to her conclusion. There are no victories in this kind of faith. They believe their sins are forgiven. And they're... They're earnest. I'm going to watch again. You know, watch and pray. I'm going to get up and read my Bible. There are no victories in this kind of faith. Not that we don't get up and read our Bible. That comes in the, in, the, in the next paragraph. Such persons, she says, toil to no purpose. Their souls are in continual bondage, and they find no rest until their burdens are laid at the feet of Jesus. Watch this. There is need of constant watchfulness and of earnest, loving devotion. But these will come naturally when the soul is kept by the power of God through faith. Game changer. I was like, are you serious? These things come naturally? We can do nothing, absolutely nothing, to commend ourselves to divine favor. We must not trust it all to ourselves or to our own good works. But when as erring, sinful beings, we come to God, we may rest in his love. God will accept the merits of a crucified Savior. Love springs up in the heart. There be, may be no ecstasy of feeling, but there is an abiding peaceful trust. Every burden is light, for the yoke which Christ imposes is easy. Duty becomes a delight and sacrifice a pleasure. The path that before seemed shrouded in darkness becomes bright with the beams of the Son of Righteousness. This is walking in the light as Christ is in the light. That again comes from Faith and Works chapter, uh, page 38. That's, that's Faith and Works chapter 9. It's actually a, a sermon that Ellen White gave and somebody transcribed it powerful. Read that chapter over and over again. I sure have, and it's changed my life. All right, so we've got about four minutes left. Abiding, joy and assurance of salvation. Paul said, I know who I'm a believed, and I'm convinced he is able to keep what I have committed to him. So let's say I start out, and I'm like, oh, Lord, I start with you in the morning. I'm faithful. I'm, I'm, I'm connected to you, and then I go into my day, and pretty soon I forget about him, and I don't think about him again until that night when I'm kneeling down. What's the solution to that situation? Abiding. This is the Greek word. Meno. To stay in a given place, state, relation, or expectancy. Abide, continue, dwell, endure, be present, remain, stand, and tarry for. Place, state, relation, expectancy. Stay there. Dwell there. Be present right there. In other words, I'm like, Lord, I can do nothing. You keep me. You're the God of my salvation. I'm going to wait for you. I can't remember to pray all day long. Remind me to pray. 
I can't remember when the moment of temptation, when something springs up that really frustrates me, I don't remember in that moment. You remind me. Keep me in that moment. Keep me from, lo- from speaking words that I will then regret. Keep me from doing something. God is the one that gives us grace to abide. We cannot actually do this of ourselves, of, of being continually in a, in a place, in a state, in a relation of expectancy towards him that he will provide salvation, that he will open the gates and let us run out into the freedom of God's wide world. That does not come naturally of us. He does it. Abiding is a gift of God, and it comes for the asking. I remember, this is another thing that I learned from my lovey, he, when he talked to me for the, about abiding, and of course I knew the concept ahead of time, but he, had ta- he gave me a testimony of how it had worked in his life. And I was like, revolutionary, I'm going to try. So that next morning I was like, Lord, you know I'm not going to remember of myself. You know I'm going to walk away and not think about you and, 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 and get into my own power again and try to do things my own self. Remind me. When something frustrates me, remind me. And at the time, um, we have a golden retriever who I absolutely love, my doggie. Um, but sometimes like, he would get this streak in him and he would be absolutely just wicked. He would be so bad so naughty and defiant and everything. Most of the time he's really sweet. And it would frustrate me to no end when he would get like that. And I would punish him and everything and it seemed would, it would like make no difference. And I would, then I would feel bad for punishing him too severely and I'd be like, Lord, I don't want to get angry at him even when he's totally terrible. So that morning I had prayed and I was like, Lord, keep me. You know I want you to keep me. I, I don't know what I'm going to face today. Just, just keep me in the palms of your hands. Hold me secure. And that day, sure enough, the dog was... I forget even what got into him, but he was just so naughty. And I immediately like, felt frustration rising, and I went out there, and I was like, Admiral! And I felt the call of God and the restraining hand of God, and it was like, peace, Natasha, peace. And it was just, it was just as sudden as that. And I was like, this really works. God really does stop us halfway through if we ask him. It is his power. He is the one that enables us to abide in him. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine. Ye are the branches. We're not the ones producing all the sap. No, he is the one. He sends it down to us. We, all we have to do is go to him and Wait on him and ask him to pour out his grace and his salvation into our lives. I am the vine, ye are the branches, he that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, without me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, I rejoice in your salvation. I rejoice that my 2015 is covered in the blood of the Lamb. I rejoice that my 2016 will be also. I rejoice that you are able to keep me. Oh, Father, I pray that you would somehow bring this message close to all of our hearts, that we would understand it, that we would know it, that we would comprehend it, that we're we're your children, we're precious to you. You have abundant mercy, plenty of mercy for us. Give us grace to understand salvation, to stop striving of ourselves or deciding you don't care about this, to recognize it does matter and you've already paid. And we are free under the smile of God. 
Give us your Holy Spirit, we pray, and we thank you for hearing and answering us. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.